In this episode, we're talking about deep seabed mining. And to talk about this topic, we're talking together with researcher Pedro Ribeiro. I think this episode is probably one of the most important podcast episodes that I will have um, right at this moment, at least, because right now the whole world actually is looking into if we should mine minerals from the deep sea. And from what I've learned so far, the deep sea is a place where we know very little about all life living there. And to go down there and start mining can have like huge consequences. The researchers and the institutes which are doing the consequence assessment, like the, the ones who are checking if like, should we do the mining? Should we not do the mining? How much do we actually know about the deep sea and so on? Most of them, or at least here in Norway, is basically all of them, like the biggest institutes and all of the researchers with, who is actually uh, researching on the deep sea, they are saying that we know way too little about the deep sea to start this deep seabed mining thing. So I thought it would be really interesting to bring one of those researchers on the podcast and to talk together about deep seabed mining. And what you will hear here is uh, Pedro's like journey when it comes to all of the research and so on. And we specifically go into the topic of deep seabed mining. And what's really interesting is that I ask him if he thinks that Norway will open up for deep seabed mining or if we will continue the plan that our government has laid out um, of like the timeline of like when we're going to do the mining. And then he says very clearly, which you will hear in the podcast, that like, no, they will not do that. Like we know way too little about the ecosystems in the deep sea and about the consequences of doing deep seabed mining uh, that we will continue uh, with the suggested timeline that the politicians here in Norway have done. And just a few days later, after we did the interview, Norway actually said that they will continue with it. And right now, World Saving Hustle, uh, we in the organization that I uh, work in and all the other like environmental organizations in Norway and so on um, and the research institutes are now having like I think it's um, like correct me if, if, if I'm wrong here but it's at least one more hearing round for the politicians and so on so and I think that's about like one month from my post this podcast um, so we have like around one month to tell the politicians and to uh, inform them about like really again and again and again that like we know way too little about the deep sea that we should do this mining. Um, I will also uh, give you like a lot of articles so you can read yourself and uh, figure out for yourself what you think. But I think from what I've learned at least that it, it's, it's really, really risky for uh, us humans um, but like for nature especially and also for all the animals living there and so on uh, that we like that is really risky if we go forward with the plan suggested but yeah this this is not my like specific topic so that's why I have Pedro with me um, in this conversation so he can talk way more about it but I just wanted to say that like in World Saving Hustle this is one of the few topics that we work with like we're a very small like organization here in, in Norway and but we have de decided that like deep seabed mining is one of the topics that we're going to work with 
And we also internationally collaborate with Sustainable Ocean Alliance, for example, and because they're working with the deep seabed mining like internationally. And then we in World Saving Hustle, we are working uh, with it here in Norway, but together uh, with all the like amazing people from the like environmental movement you have here in Norway. And they have like much more like researchers than we do and like ex experts and so on. So collaboration here is really key. That's also why we thought bringing Pedro on this podcast would be uh, of great use as well. And hopefully inform the public a little bit more about what the situation is. And so, yeah, th this will mostly be about like Norway, but we have this conversation in English so everybody can tune in. <laughs> yeah. And when you listen to this podcast, um, like if you live in Norway, uh, you can go to WWF's webpage and you can like vote if you are against or if you are positive uh, for deep seabed mining. Um, and I suggest, uh, like, I personally voted that, like, no, like, we shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, but that, at least for now, like, one of the things being discussed is also if we should have, like, a moratorium, uh, which is like a thinking break, meaning that if we have a moratorium on deep seabed mining, in this case, it means that we will not start with deep seabed mining until there's been a really good cons uh, consequence assessment and we really know what's at stake. But Again, right now, all the researchers or like most of them are saying we basically have no clue of all the life there. Like we know way too little about life in the deep sea that we can go and like mine the whole place. And also that the area is like so huge. So we need like much more time to really like figure out um, what's in the deep, you know? And some people will also call like the deep sea for like the last wilderness or like the last like untouched uh, place on earth where nature can just like be itself and so on. Um, so we have to be really careful about like engaging there. And like when you first um, like do changes in the deep sea, it will take like so long time until the deep sea to adapt and so on, because everything down in deep sea goes like really slow or like, because it's really cold or like, actually like some places it's really hot and I guess, and also, well, like, okay, let's, <laughs> I think I'm done. Uh, let's Pedro do the talking. Um, but I just want you to know that this is a really relevant topic of 2023. Um, so please listen to the whole podcast ep episode and educate your, your, yourself more on this topic. If you find like environmentalism or I guess humanity and effective altruism and so on really interesting. And then if you have some feedback for this episode, please leave a comment below or text me um, and we will see what we will do. Because this is not something I just will do a podcast on, but this is something which we are currently working on. And we will also launch a, a little video from World Saving Hustle later, um, uh, probably in like some weeks or a month or two. Uh, not that sure. Uh, we're working on it right now. So yeah, I guess that's it. Um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, Pedro, again, for having this conversation with me. It was truly amazing. I learned so many things and so many useful things. And um, I hope you had a good time at your mission. Uh, like, because after the podcast we did, which you will soon hear or listen to, um, Pedro went out on an expedition again uh, to continue his uh, deep sea research. So, yeah, I'm really stoked about this conversation. Hope that you which are watching or listening, can learn a lot. So here is the conversation with me and Pedro Ribeiro. Okay, you ready? 
as ready as I can be. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, thank you so much for being here, Pedro. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting. Amazing. Okay, so let's just jump into it. Uh, I'm wondering, um, yeah, like what what have you been working on lately? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a deep sea researcher at the University of Bergen and the Center for Deep Sea Research at the UIB. Uh, my most recent research in the last uh, few years has been on, on deep sea uh, environments in the Arctic and the Nordic seas. So investigating the seafloor habitats uh, in the deep sea, um, including sponge grounds, um, hydrothermal vents, um, and do, so doing some exploration, but also re, um, investigation, so scientific research. Mm. So you're like out in the sea. Uh, in do you go down in the submarines as well? <laughs> no, unfortunately, how, how does it work? yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, I I haven't been lucky enough to have uh, this opportunity. But we do have um, very sophisticated uh, um, underwater uh, robots that are controlled from the vessel, um, and these are the plot platforms that we use um, to go down uh, virtually and and um, to. Uh, explore these habitats to take pictures but also to take samples with uh, so these these vehicles they have uh, arms and they have a set of tools that allow us to sample all kinds of animals but also um, other samples such as fluid and and rock samples from from these environments and what are some of the like latest findings you've been yeah figuring out or yeah so the area where we are uh, conducting our research has been investigated in the last almost 20 years using uh, modern technology. However, the fact that these are very remote uh, areas, it's, it's not so easy to access them. Um, and they are always, um, these research cruisers are also limited in time, it means that um, part of these areas have never been visited before. So our research is a mix of um, conducting um, studies in areas that we know well since the last 10-15 years that we have visited many times and this includes assessing the biodiversity uh, so the number of species and the kind of species that live in these environments but also the their ecology which means uh, how the environment influences um, the living of these animals and also the interaction between these different species um, but also a good part of what we do is simply exploring new areas um, so finding uh, new areas, for instance, I can give an example of hydrothermal vents. So you have these uh, hot fluids coming from the Earth's crust. And these are very limited in space. These are very, very small areas. Um, so part of our research is also involving uh, covering this as much as we can of, of the seafloor, searching for these new habitats to in a way to, to put one more piece of the puzzle together um, into the characterization, the global characterization of the deep sea um, in the Arctic mid-ocean ridge. So this is the, the, where, where the tectonic plates come together on the, on the seafloor and where you have this a volcanic activity and associated with this volcanic activity, you have very particular um, environments. Exactly. Like, yeah. Because... Um, I guess down in deep sea is like mostly super cold, but around these areas it's like hot or how is it? 
Yeah, in fact, uh, most of the deep sea uh, is cold. And when when we say deep sea, these are the this is the ocean below two hundred meters depth, so the water column, but also the seafloor. Most of it, and and it, it goes until more than ten kilometers depth. So the deep sea can really be very very deep. Uh, the areas that we are investigating here lie between the deep sea areas between two hundred meters down to uh, 4,000 meters depth. And it's true that most of the uh, deep sea floor is cold and dark. Mm. Um, so the temperature always around zero degrees, minus one. Um, but in these hot springs, so these hydrothermal vents, you have the hot fluid that with, whose temperature can range from a few dozen degrees to more than 300 degrees wow. Celsius. Uh, however, you have this very short distance uh, between very, very hot and then again down to background temperature, down to zero minus one. Yeah. And it's actually in this very short distance, this what we call gradient, environmental gradient, where you find uh, special kind of spe uh, communities, yeah. biological communities that are associated with this hot environments but of course they don't survive at 300 degrees so they have to find the sweet spot in exactly. this in this gradient yeah. so that so you have um it's almost parallel with what you see on the rocky shore on the coast you yeah. have this uh, you have this zonation yeah of animals where suddenly you have animals that are strictly associated with with the hydrothermal vents um, and they are associated with microbes with bacteria that only live in these areas and then a few meters away you have the common fauna that lives in the most most of the deep sea area so you have this this little gradient yeah oh, that's interesting and that's almost like like that sweet spot is also like us humans on planet earth basically in the universe <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> kind of yeah yeah oh, and okay but yeah like tell me more about like life down in the deep sea like how how is it what lives there really yeah, well, uh, until relatively recent, um, the scientists thought that the deep sea had no life um, until uh, the mid-19th century, um, when almost by chance, uh, uh, some, some deeper samples were collected of these strange animals uh, that could only come from hundreds of meters uh, deep. Mm. So the deep sea, uh, it's not... Uh, as I mentioned before, it's not one continuous environment. It has different environments with different kinds of animals. So you can have, as I mentioned, species that are associated with hydrothermal vents and they occur in large numbers. It's kind of like um, very, very dense aggregations mm. of, of few species uh, such as snails, uh, mussels or worms. Mm. But you can also have other kind of uh, environments such as sponge grounds and these are also found in Norwegian waters where you have these um, very very densely packed um, uh, assemblages of, of um, sessile animals so these are animals that cannot move they they settle on the on the rock on the substrate and they cannot move so they form this very very dense pack of different um, species uh, such as sponges i don't know if if you if you uh if you have seen a sponge before so this yeah i think i have like some footage um 
that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, so these strange animals that look like mushrooms yeah. <laughs> sometimes, but associated with these densely packed mm. sponge grounds, and you also have the equivalent to sponge grounds, but with corals. So associated with this mm. um, uh, very densely packed uh, foundation species, uh, so they, they form the habitat. You have all other kinds of animals that live there because of uh, seeking shelter or food or a place to to reproduce to lay the eggs mm -hmm. so they form uh, highly diverse habitats that again they only occur in specific conditions in the deep sea for instance in the case of sponge grounds they are more common at certain depths um, for instance here in the nordic seas between 600 meters a thousand meters depth and on underwater mountains on sea mounts where you have these uh, physical conditions such as certain patterns of currents mm. um, and and a certain amount of available food um, where they can they can settle and then you have most of the deep sea floor is just sediment mm -hmm. abyssal plain yeah where you have um, what seems to be very boring uh, habitat but in fact what happens is that you have a few species on the surface mm -hmm. that you see living on the surface but most of the biodiversity is inside the sediments so oh. yeah we cannot we cannot see it um, and Interesting. and it's extremely important uh, um, these are small organisms or even microbes that are extremely important for the cycling of the nutrients on a global scale yeah. Uh, however, on a first approach and a first examination, you look and you see nothing and you would be um, almost convinced that these uh, abyssal plains, sediment abyssal plains are deserts when in fact they are not. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and like uh, when, like I work a little bit with like, uh, uh, like deep seabed mining and so on. So then I've done a little bit of research on like the deep sea. Um, and when doing that, I remember uh, like somebody like almost like referring to the deep sea as like the last like part of like untouched nature on earth and so on. Um, but knowing about, for example, deep seabed mining and so on, like what, like what can you like identify as some of the like biggest threats of the deep sea? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we thought that distance, physical distance, means that these environments are remote and hardly accessible. However, human activities are expanding offshore and they are, they are going further out away from the coast and further deep um, into these, uh, into these uh, uh, previously inaccessible uh, uh, areas. Well, the, the major threats that I can um, identify and, and it's, it's consensual among most of the research community. We have obviously climate change um, that is extending. So we have ocean warming, but also ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. And these effects are extending further deep. Um, and these are transboundary. So there's no borders there among countries. It's a global issue. But you also have overfishing. Mm -hmm. um, you have pollution. Um, uh, for instance, but not just uh, industrial pollution and pollution from um, large cities, but also 
microplastics and yeah. all this kind of debris. Um, and of course, deep sea mining, it's not uh, a human activity as such yet because commercial deep sea mining has not begun. However, um, we are on track for this to happen in the next uh, decade or so, which means that we can identify deep sea mining as also a threat to, to, to the deep sea environment. Yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, you mentioned it a little bit, but like, uh, since it's like international waters, like what, what are like the rules of like the deep sea and like, is it protected or like, uh, yeah. How does that work in the deep sea? Yeah. Well, most of the deep sea, um, occurs in international waters in areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, which means that when you have, I'll give the example of Norway because, um, maybe part of the public will will see this as the most immediate uh, scenario. Um, Norway has a, a extremely diverse um, marine area, um, all kinds of habitats occurring from, you know, from very shallow depths down, as I mentioned, down to four and a half uh, thousand meters. When we are talking about management and conservation within a national jurisdiction, um, this is one situation. However, um, the vast majority of the deep sea, um, I, I, I don't want to say the precise number, but I would say for, well, probably around 70% of, of the deep sea area occurs in beyond national jurisdiction, which means that any protective measures have to be, uh, concerted between countries. Um, mm -hmm. There's, uh, until now, I would say that less than 1% of the high seas, uh, which includes um, the entire habitats uh, in the whole water column from the surface down to the seafloor, mm -hmm. uh, probably 1% or less than 1% of the high seas have been protected in an effective way, which means, um, and this is also consensual, it involves um, the establishment of marine protected areas, mm -hmm. uh, fully protected. So no take uh, marine protected areas. This means any extractive activity is not allowed. Um, of course, given the increase of human activities going further offshore and deeper, uh, there has been also uh, increased awareness for from several nations that this problem needs to be addressed, the problem of conservation. Uh, in international waters needs to be addressed. However, you don't have one organization that can um, oversee all the activities. So you can have uh, organizations that are regulating fisheries mm -hmm. or organizations that are regulating the extraction of mineral resources on the seabed, but you don't have one global organization that can uh, generate regulation that goes across all these activities. So that's another challenge. Um, but mm. efforts are being made towards uh, more and more initiatives. I can think about the, the High Seas Treaty for uh, Biodiversity Conservation, uh, which is being negotiated uh, in the United Nations. Mm. And of course, um, when it comes to deep sea mining, um, there has been in, in the last uh, years, um, negotiations towards developing 
a mining code or, or um, a regulation that establishes the rules for extraction of seabed minerals, but also for the conservation of the marine environment. So they have to come together. Okay. They have yeah. the regulations need to be uh, uh, established together. But of course, this involves um, negotiation among many countries, and it's usually a process that takes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So, like, what are the best ways to then protect the deep sea? Well, like, you know, like, how can you move forward is it only like political or like how do you yeah uh, well eventually the decisions have to be made at, a, at the political level um, me as a researcher as a scientist uh, my goal and my um, um, my drive is to uh, create uh, scientific uh, data and scientific knowledge that can inform the authorities about the risks of certain activity to the environment and also provide recommendations to minimize those risks. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, ultimately, the decision is made by the politicians. Uh, however, the politicians, of course, they are also sensitive to not just to the researchers, but also to the general public. Mm -hmm. um, so the best way to protect the deep sea, and I can say maybe uh, this this can cover all the, the ecosystems, the whole environment, is to have an informed public opinion. So mm -hmm. to inform the public adequately about what is out there, what mm -hmm. are the risks for a certain activity, mm -hmm. um, solid scientific research, and this takes time. Mm -hmm. um, and very, very good information for the, for the authorities to make a decision. Uh, so a science-based decision, but exactly. that also meets the interests of the public. Yeah, like when you do your research and you give it to the like politicians or to the people who ask for the research, like what happens after that? Um, mm. Well, uh, we of course we conduct. Um, there's two kinds of research. Uh, you have basic fundamental research, and you have applied research. Um, depending on the goal. So talking about fundamental research, it's essentially exploring, and I'm talking about the deep sea, exploring new areas, documenting what occurs there and investigating the ecology of, of these biological communities that live there. Mm -hmm. uh, this is fundamental research and it's a good source for the authorities, for the decision makers, um, to whatever is on the table. Uh, however, it is common practice, and I think this has to be done, and it takes skill from the researcher to be able to communicate to people who are not scientists. Mm. And um, most politicians are not marine biologists, yeah. which means that we publish our work, but mm. nowadays we also need to have um, Part of our activity has to be outreach to the public and has to be communication with authorities, um, either by inviting this or that um, government body to, for instance, be part of a, of a, a working group within a research project as an observer, for instance. But usually what happens is that when 
when there is a, a question that needs to be answered and when there is regulation that needs to be developed, it's the other way around. It's, it is the authorities that seek uh, scientific, uh, the, the researchers, the, the authorities will contact us and will mandate, uh, many times they will mandate certain uh, institutions to conduct the appropriate research in order to provide the information that is needed. Like, so that they ask for like a specific type of research to be done. Like, so not fundamental as, as you said. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, so I can give you the, the example of, yeah. of this whole process of deep sea mining. Um, there is a process of consultation um, and uh, impact assessment that has been going on several different steps. Mm. And this process was established by, by the Norwegian government. So the Norwegian government informed uh, what would be the different steps involved before a decision is made mm -hmm. uh, towards um, opening areas for deep sea mining or not. And uh, there, is, there has been a mandate to different institutions that, that have a track record for, to provide the relevant information. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and then all of this has to be synthesized into, um, um, it has to be really uh, made into a kind of um, uh, information that can be read by people who are not experts. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's exactly uh, what um, I think has been uh, the, the most important development in recent decades. It's um, building this bridge between the researchers who mm. sometimes speak their own language yeah. and the authorities that make the decisions. Exactly. And who also speak their own language, kind of. So. To like mix that in a good way. Yeah. yeah. And of course, NGOs have a huge, yeah, yeah. huge role here uh, exactly. in, um, of course, talking to everybody, but also, uh, you know, sometimes if the information that is provided is biased towards one side or the other, I think NGOs have a very important role here to, um, as a stakeholder, um, to, um, to um, participate in, in this kind of processes. That's good there. <laughs> I have a bias there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, yeah. Do you know uh, like the status of like deep seabed mining in Norway? Yes. So uh, the whole process of opening uh, deep sea mining, uh, and it is deep sea mining industry. So for licensing deep sea mining in Norway, started with the with the coming into force of the Seabed Minerals Act. So it's, it's a law that was published um, in 2019, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that lays down in general terms um, what deep sea mining, that there, there may be, this may be an interesting industry for Norway in coming years, mm -hmm. but any extractive um, operations have to be uh, made in a way that will not harm the, the environment. So it, then it sets the foundations into what are the different steps um, towards a decision. So the first step was uh, building a knowledge base. So several institutions in Norway were asked to, to give the state of the art regarding, well, in, in, in our case, regarding the benthic habitats, uh, benthic deep sea habitats 
in these areas that may be open for marine minerals, but there were other reports for uh, for the pelagic environment and and other other sectors. Um, and then after that, there was also other steps uh, towards understanding more what would be possible impacts uh, based on current knowledge, mm -hmm. because the the timeline of roughly three years um, would would be really short, the timeline before a decision will be made is manifestly short to come up with new knowledge for the deep sea because the studies, these studies take time and mm. um, takes a lot of investment to, to bring a research vessel out, um, out on the, on the, on the Arctic ridge and, you know, conduct the necessary studies. So th the environmental impact based on current knowledge is to try to predict what would deep sea mining cause to the environment, to other economic activities, and what would be the social impact. Um, and this is where we stand right now. Yeah. Um, and then in 2023, based on this study here, the Norwegian government will decide whether or not, um, or the parliament, whether or not um, we take the next step, which would be to open certain areas of the of the deep sea under Norwegian jurisdiction for mineral exploration, which means um, uh, expeditions by companies or institutions um, that are that are sponsored by by uh, mining companies to go out there and to investigate whether or not these mineral deposits are worth exploring. Mm. Um, and associated with this, there should be also an, an environmental study of, of specific areas. Yeah. So in a first, in a first step, I believe that, um, the, the activity will not be open on a commercial scale. So there will be an exploration phase. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, if, um, these exploration studies, uh, decide that it is economically feasible to open a, um, an industry without harming the environment and other activities, mm. then I believe the next step would be to open licenses for commercial mining. Exactly. Yeah. So exploration study, that's like another type of study, basically, because then they're going down again and doing, or like doing another type of study. Like, <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, sorry. So we have a distinction between in, in the deep sea mining vocabulary, yeah. we have a distinction between exploration and exploitation. Yeah. Exploration involves surveys, mm. small scale surveys. Yeah. Um, to assess the quality of the mineral resources or mm. to explore a certain area to try to find a mineral deposit and then mm. assess the, the quality of that deposit, the size of it, mm. how many tons, different kinds of metals. Okay, yeah. This is the exploration phase. Yeah. And then the exploitation phase is, okay, imagine that this particular company decides that this area here is, is very appealing and there can mm. be commercial mining there, then mm they would apply to an exploitation license, which would be yeah. industrial scale uh, uh, extraction of minerals. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what I was wondering about was then, okay. So, uh, if they're maybe going into an exploration study phase in next year, 
like, wasn't that what they already have done? Or like, isn't that exploration study as well? Uh, like taking small samples and so on. Or is it like exploration study volume two kind of? Yeah. So you have, um, I'll, I'll try to answer based on, on the information that I have, the, the best information yeah. that I have. You, you have two kinds of exploration. So you have academic uh, research, research studies that have been happening for, uh, like I said, in this area for almost 20 years, um, where the information that you collect is for research uh, you know, to understand how the seabed is formed and how underwater mountains are formed and hydrothermal vents, so this kind of research. This can be used, uh, this kind of information can be used for other purposes, for yeah. for industry-driven dri goals. Exactly. For instance, the industry can, um, not just the industry, but whoever is interested, uh, can you take the information that we researchers collect from the seafloor and try to interpret that information, for instance, to try to identify mineral deposits without going there, Yeah. for instance, looking at okay. them. So it would be kind of a predictive study where you take the data that you collected and, and you apply a, a certain um, computer model to it, and the output is showing in different areas what is the probability of a particular type of mineral in this case occurring and in association with this in the last few years the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate was also mandated by the Norwegian government to conduct surveys and these are last la large-scale surveys um, also in the same way to map this the seafloor in greater detail and based on these maps and certain samples that are collected also to try to assess um, the amount of mineral deposits that exist down there and their composition. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have a, a third uh, level, which has not happened yet, which would be to uh, allow for even private companies, so not just, mm -hmm. not just the authorities or researchers, mm -hmm. but to allow for private companies to... Uh, uh, prepare their own cruises, you know, uh, hire a large vessel with equipment yeah. and apply to go to a specific area for, for instance, for drilling the seabed and mm. collecting samples as a private company. Exactly, uh, that's the commercial part. That's the commercial part and that would be the first stage. Uh, so this mm. would be the exploratory phase to determine if uh, that area is suitable or good enough uh, in terms of the amount of minerals mm. to move forward to a to a large scale commercial uh, activity exactly yeah mm. so so yeah. just to finish uh, mm. this part um until now only the norwegian petroleum director has been mandated to conduct these surveys mm. also in collaboration with research institutions yeah and when when i mention opening certain areas for exploration that it would be possible for a company to bid uh, or to, to, to place a request for a license to do it themselves, to go to a certain area mm -hmm. and say, we want to go there with equipment to, um, to check if that area is suitable for mining. Mm. Yeah. And do you think that will happen? 
like, do you think it will be commercial, like deep seabed mining in 2023 or? Uh, no, I don't believe so. In 2023, I, I don't believe so. Um, and I, uh, of course, I am not aware of all the industrial developments, but I would say that um, the part that I'm more, um, um, that I uh, spend more time into uh, in, my, in my work is to look at the environmental part. Um, mm. And there we have huge knowledge gaps um, that do not allow us to answer whether or not uh, deep sea mining would cause uh, a sizable impact. We believe so, but we do not have enough data that will allow us to put a number of, on the size of the impact. For instance, how far a potential mining plume can spread mm. and what kind of damage it will cause on the environment. Mm. We do not have uh, we are conducting these studies, not just the University of Bergen, but other institutions. We are conducting the studies that can answer this question. Okay. However, the timeline for 2023 is, is not enough. And uh, as you know, um, we already gave this feedback uh, yeah. last year um, that we need more time. The, the research community, the scientific community needs more time for this. But at the same time, I believe that the, the industry also needs to develop equipment that can um, work at those depths without breaking um, mm. and in a cost-effective way, but also in a way that does not cause environmental damage. So I also believe that uh, there is there is there is quite a quite a road to to go there and. Mm. I, I am not sure that in 2023 um, the technology will be ready for a commercial yeah. exploration, but uh, probably some prototypes to be tested down in the deep sea um, to see how they operate, to perfect uh, certain mechanisms. Yeah, that I believe, but not for commercial mining. Okay, yeah, and mm, as you mentioned now, like... Um if I understood it correctly, then um, like the politicians in Norway, like last year, uh, gave out like a plan or like a timeline of the deep seabed mining. And then as you mentioned, um, yeah, like University of Bergen, uh, where you are, and also other um, like Norse and uh, the Norwegian Environment Agency and so on, um, they all gave feedback yes. to this plan. Uh, but then the politicians still kept the plan or like, uh, I think so like they didn't give more time, but they're still doing or like taking their time now, I guess. But, and actually in these days they're going to answer or like give a new proposal, I think, but, um, that was a bit messy, but <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. I understand what you are, what you mean. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because like the the main question here is that I, uh, like, like, is that co correct that like they gave a plan, you gave feedback and then they kind of continue with their original plan. And why is that? Well, or I can, like, of, obviously I cannot speak <laughs> of course, of course. on behalf of, yeah, yeah. of the Norwegian government. Uh, however, mm. I understand that a plan was laid down Yeah, uh, and there's a timeline, um, and I also know that uh, our feedback and our input, our knowledge input into the whole process 
is being taken into account. However, there is a timeline where in 2023 things will be reassessed. And I believe this is this will be the point when um, um, rather than interrupting a process that was laid down, there's uh, this three-year process, roughly three years, maybe a little less. Okay, yeah. It was laid down and then you have all sources of information. Mm. And of course, it is consensual among the scientists that 2023 is too early. So the information yeah. is public, it's out yes. there, uh, it's consensual. Um, I believe myself that from the industry side of things, the, the technology is not there yet mm. because the industry and, and the scientists need to work side by side uh, because we need to exchange information on, for instance, the industry needs to know what kind of environmental impact would be acceptable. But to know that, we need to know what kind of machinery is being used mm. so that we can also predict what kind of disturbance is caused on the seafloor. Mm. So, so you see, this is yeah. this kind of uh, kind of like a, a, a two-person dance. I mean, yeah. we we cannot do it. Um, there has to be collaboration, um, and and I believe that uh, all of this will be taken in consideration next year. I I really want to believe that um, the fact that it's too early to make a decision that can have a big impact in the future yeah. generation uh, will be taken uh, like that. Okay. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah. Um, and then I know because there's a lot of like lack of knowledge regarding the deep sea when it comes to deep sea mining and so on. Um, a lot of countries have this like moratorium. Could you explain what that is? Yes, a uh, moratorium is um, this movement. Uh, it it uh, it it grew among the the research community and then. NGOs and and other agencies and and institutions that are um, within the topic and they are they, are, they have an active uh, um, voice in the topic, um, suggesting that the the level of knowledge regarding the the deep sea ecosystems is insufficient to make a sound decision, um, and. Of course, uh, it was not independent from the fact that in international waters, in the Pacific, uh, Clarion Clipton, uh, sorry, Clarion Clipton zone. Um, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. Uh, in the Clarion Clipton zone, uh, you have this very, very extensive area of of um, manganese nodules. So this is another kind of mineral uh, resource. And of course, being an international uh, in international waters in areas beyond national jurisdiction is is the International Seabed Authority that has the mandate from the United Nations to regulate mining and to regulate uh, the conservation of the environments. However, there's a clause here saying that if one member state activates this two-year clause, uh, saying that within two years, there has to be a, a mining regulation approved and in place. Otherwise, we will go for it nonetheless. So this clause was activated um, by the Republic of Nauru. It's a, it's a Pacific country. Um, and 
Therefore, the International Seabed Authority has to address um, this request, uh, either by um, uh, conducting the studies and, and the negotiations that will lead to the approval of this mining regulation. Otherwise, according to this clause, mining, mining can start um, nonetheless. Um, and of course... So what? So that's... Like, okay, so this nation, like country, they wanted to start it, or? and Yeah, then... so, so they are essentially saying this mining code has to come out um, because it's, of course, something that has been, is being negotiated for a few years now. Mm -hmm. This has to be in place. Uh, otherwise, if it's not in place... Then they can just start. They can just start with, with, with some activities down on the seabed, even if... Uh, if the the regulation is not in place yet, uh, however, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, this is it. not yeah. this is not uh, on the side of the international law or or mm. uh, facing their back on on uh, the international seabed authority. It's not the case, but it's just saying if the mining code is not in place mm. by this date, we according to that clause, the two year rule, mm -hmm. we can go for it, mm -hmm. whether they go or not. Uh, I don't know, mm. but so this moratorium uh, uh, argues. Uh, so the, the people who subscribe and the institutions and the researchers who subscribe this moratorium argue that in no, it's in no way possible that in the next few years we will have enough information um, to be able to predict what industrial scale deep sea mining will cause to the environment and and also the the broader scale implications of deep sea mining. Therefore, it would be advisable, um, including under the precautionary principle, which states that if you don't know enough about something, you better take a conservative approach. Mm -hmm. So it would be advisable, it would be wise, it would be urgent to stop um, and impose a moratorium five, five to 10 years on this process of opening up for deep sea mining until the required studies are uh, finished. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, to me, at least, that sounds like a really smart thing to do, um, which I think also was reflected like when there was this international vote last year, where it was like 81 countries who voted yes for a moratorium on deep sea mining, but 18 countries voted no, and Norway being one of them. Um, like how, like I'm trying to understand the ones who voted no, like why, why do you think they voted no for a moratorium? Well, I don't know. Uh, however, I can, I, I spoke to enough people who are in favor or against yeah. the moratorium to understand what are the arguments mm -hmm. on both sides. Of course, I already mentioned that people who voted or undersigned the, mor the moratorium, they really say we need more time mm -hmm. to conduct the research that is needed. Uh, and those who are opposing the moratorium state that uh, bringing the moratorium on, let's say 10 years, would actually be negative for uh, research uh, because then uh, there would not be this, this uh, really strong motive to conduct the studies that are needed. 
and and maybe things will cool down a little and then of course we also have to consider that maybe from the industry point of view having a moratorium and not knowing what will happen after the 10-year moratorium maybe you know there are also development programs going on um and i think this could also be an argument uh, in favor of not having a moratorium but from the research from the scientific research point of view the argument is that okay if there's a moratorium to deep sea bed mining then uh, it's like things will cool off and the, the, the funding for research might decrease mm. uh, so we might we might as well keep this uh, you know keep this goal of uh, or, or this perspective of eventually having deep sea mining in the recent future because then the research studies can can be conducted more intensively mm. i believe this is the argument yeah yeah okay interesting um before we move on to some other stuff do you have anything else regarding deep sea mining uh, that you want to talk about uh not so much. Uh, there is one aspect that I, I try to communicate every time I have the opportunity, um, such as this one, I, I really am happy to have this opportunity, is that it is very important for the, for the public to be well informed. Um, and this involves good media coverage and um, you know, you know, good investigation into what the topic is about. Mm as much information out there as possible uh podcasts such as yours uh where you invite several people to talk about well in this case deep sea mining but other 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 topics um so i i think here that the population the general public if they are well informed about what are the risks even about what kind of life is mm. is down there and and we can disseminate this. Um, there, I, I would say that it's as important as scientific research. Amazing. Um, regarding that, do you, do you know are there like some documentaries or anything on the deep sea? Or maybe somebody should make it. If there are documentaries on the deep sea, yeah, yes, there, there's. Um, well, you have the the oceans, the and the Blue Planet yeah. uh, documentaries. Um, and I know for a fact that uh, several broadcasting companies uh, are producing content mm. um, that will um, talk about Deep Sea and they will show fantastic images and uh, they will talk also a little bit about what kind of research is going on. Okay. And, you know, there there is actually in recent years there's more and more interest yeah. in in producing this kind of content mm. using images from real research cruises uh, mm. you know the 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 kind of equipment that we use nowadays is very sophisticated mm. and we can produce not produce but we can generate high quality images that can actually be incorporated in in a in a high quality production Okay. Yeah, and there are several that are in the pipeline. Okay, cool. Yes. Oh, looking forward to see that. Um, okay, so uh, in general, like one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast and so on, 
uh, is because I'm trying to figure out like how to do the most good. Um, so yeah, I'm basically just wondering like with everything that you do, like how, how do you think that one can figure out how to do the most good? Hmm. That, that sounds like a very, uh, overarching question. So uh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So when you say do the most good, is it for the protection of the environment, for the education of, oh. of uh, people or, uh, yeah, like, um, I'm, I'm actually thinking like in general, like maybe like we talked a little bit off camera, but like for me, 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 for example, now, like I wasn't that good in school and so on. Um, so one one thing I'm trying to do is see if like maybe a communication in some way could be a good 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 way like doing social media like podcast or um yeah or or like may, maybe maybe mm. uh, if I'm actually trying to do the most good maybe I should um like I don't know like become a teacher like <laughs> I I have no idea um so it's not like just to protect the environment or like it's just like in general, like maybe, um, uh, like I'll figure out that I'm really good in helping people with their mental health, which again yeah. will then help like nature and animals mm. and humans and everything because they're doing good. Um, yeah. Or maybe like getting a lot of money to fund your research, <laughs> for example, like <laughs> I would go knows? for that. You would one. Go for that yes. One. <laughs> yes. No, I, yeah. I see, I see, uh, I see your, what you're asking. Um, mm. And it's a very important question. It's, in my perspective, it's all about the meaning of life yeah. for us. Uh, for instance, my calling was to be a scientific, uh, uh, to be a scientist mm. and to be a marine biologist. Your calling, yeah, so you realize that, uh, and allow me to say this about you, I mean, you just said it, but you realize that following an academic career is not for you. Mm. So you found your own path. And I think we can do the most good if we, well, I think we, we have to be good people. <laughs> yeah. Right. It starts with that. So being good people means uh, wanting the best for, for others mm. and uh, seeking uh, the talent that we have and, and using that talent on behalf of others. So whether you are a teacher or a scientist or a, a communicator, um, all kinds of professions, I think doing the most good involves that, involves using your skills, your, your talent into uh, a progressive, um, you know, into the progress of society and uh, the world, um, whether it's conservation, nature conservation or, or something else. Um, so I would see it like that, like in a philosophical, mm. broad uh, perspective. And do you have any tips for like how, how to go forward to do that? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I know not an easy question. No, it's not an easy question because you know, at, at this time of my life, I remember when I was, I was young, of course, everyone is thinking, uh, where, where do I want to go? What do I, where do I want to do this and that? I think the, the first thing in my perspective would be to don't go into something that you really don't like. Uh, I can give you a, a very clear example. There can be sometimes pressure for us to become a doctor or a lawyer or, or a university 
teachers or an academic. I think the first thing is do something that you like doing and that you are good at. Um, but above all, something that you like doing. Mm. That would be my, my, uh, my main thing is that because when, when you reach a certain time of your life and you realize this was not my case, but many people realize, well, I went the wrong way. But it's never late to, to do something else. You know, it's never late to realize that you are not doing what really accomplishes you. Mm. And I want to try something else. And nowadays, uh, you know, we have so many ways of, of reaching people, mm. um, of communicating with large amounts of people. You know? so, so if we have this skill and this talent, but also this wish, I think, I think that's a good way to do it, to try to reach as much, as many people as you want. So um, in my case, we have, we have the students that we need to educate. We have our, our colleagues, uh, with which we also have a, an exchange and we have collaborations, but there's also the other component of, um, showing the public what we are doing and disseminating what we are doing. So, yeah. And, and I believe that this will lead to something good mm. for sure. Mm. And of course be, uh, use as many, as much information as we can to show things factually, you know, to, mm. uh, so for instance, in my line of research to speculate as little as possible and to use scientific knowledge, solid scientific knowledge to communicate mm. what I'm trying to communicate. And that's the way to do good. And it's not to misinform. We don't want to misinform other people. So I don't know if I answered your question. It's quite a question. Uh, I love that answer. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, we've been talking a little bit about the meaning of life, kind of. Um, and then uh, how people can do the most good. But then back to the deep sea. Like if, if uh, people who listen or watch this are like, um, I think I want to like check out, maybe I can help like the deep sea in some way. How, how should I do that? How can they move forward? Yeah, well, uh, it depends on what their activity is. So of course it, if it's, um, I would say if it's a university student who wants to be a scientist, then we really have, um, the need for, for scientists and uh, you know, scientists who also have this capacity to see the world, um, you know, a changing world and to have also a capacity to communicate. Um, if it's for instance, someone in the communication area, mm. nothing better than, uh, communicating about the deep sea, uh, talking with the people that work, um, not just biologists, but all kinds of researchers talking with the industry, with the ocean industry. Um, trying to understand both perspectives from fundamental research, from the industry perspective, um, or, or just being active in, um, well, seeking more information, but also being active in disseminating this information, not just through channels like podcasts, but also, uh, you know, in schools, um, among their family, everywhere. I think that the key here would be to, um, give more, um, exposure to 
the deep sea environment because everyone knows or most people know what the rainforest is um, or what the polar bear is, you know, these very charismatic mm. animals. But the deep sea is, is down there, is remote, is hidden. So I think the most important would be to uh, disseminate, to, to, to show more what, what the deep sea is about, contribute to the research and also be active in, in, uh, in uh, uh, situations such as if there is an important decision to be made that can have an impact. Uh, being an activist is also something very, very important. Good. Um, yeah, we kind of touched on that, or like what's neglected in the deep sea? You mean in terms of research or? Yeah, ag again, like um, it's kind of general, but um, but I guess maybe like almost everything is neglected when it comes to the deep sea. Like you said, like not many people know about it, so the communication part of it is absolutely neglected. But as well as you mentioned, it's not it's like a lack of knowledge regarding if we should do deep sea mining because we don't know enough about the deep sea. So then it's neglected with research as well. But, mm, yeah. I, I would not say it's neglected. What I would say is that for many years, um, deep sea research was this very difficult discipline that requires huge budgets and a lot of equipment to, to go down there and, mm. and collect the data that we need. Um, and on the other hand, uh, it was not very visible, uh, to the, to the general public. So it's not that it was neglected, but it was not just, I would say prime time material, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now, but now with, with the fact that we have this sustainability issue that has to be, uh, you know, addressing all different kinds of uh, human activities and all the different um, ecosystems you know sustainability conservation they come together they mm. they are they are two sides of the same thing um, the deep sea has also become um, a topic that is under the spotlight mm. more and more because yeah. um, of course deep sea mining is, is is an important part of it but also because there has been a development in the kind of uh, technology that we use for the deep sea research. So suddenly we are able to show in a compelling way, mm. uh, in, in, in sometimes in an artistic way, we are able to show what lives out there. Mm. And, and uh, you know, the public people, human beings, they are sensitive to beauty and to what is mm. strange mm. and is all these weird forms of life. Yeah. So it was not a neglect, but um, let, let's say that uh, as with other areas of research, recent technological developments have enabled us to, well, to go deeper and to collect more data and to bring this data and, and uh, all these different kinds of information, make them more accessible to all. And then, of course, you have the conservation uh, issues that more and more involve deep sea uh, ecosystems. Um, so I, I believe I, I actually don't remember what was the question exactly, but, uh, um, you, you answered it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and also when, when you were saying that, that like now you have more advanced advancement and so on, so you can, uh, it's, it's like more easy to do the research, uh, maybe not easy still, but like 
more easy than from before at least <laughs> um mm. yeah and like do you have any like um moments or some like favorite like moments from the research you've been doing like when you figured out something that you didn't know or like um yes anything comes to mind yeah 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 of course um of course it's not that research has become easier but you know it's like buying um a good camera yeah you you don't need to think about the camera to take good pictures but you need to be a good photographer yeah. to take good pictures but if you have a good equipment then it makes things a bit easier like that because yeah. you put the technical part aside because you you have less challenges exactly. so uh, what technological development has enabled is that we can address some of those challenges for instance to observe the deep sea continuously mm. over the years by placing observatories permanent observatories on the deep sea bed mm. and mm. having them collecting data continuously it will allow us understanding these environments better compared to a few years ago when we would visit one location one time once a year if we were lucky mm. always when the weather was uh, allowing for this uh, research so it's in this sense that in, in improving technology will allow us to collect better data yeah um and then uh, yes of course a good a nice episode that i always remember um, is a, we had a recent uh, cruise to the Arctic Ridge um, in uh, in summer 2021. Uh, sorry, in summer 2021, that that was the case, where we brought we had this brand new uh, camera mm. that was able to collect image in 4K quality. Mm. Um, before that, we had a camera. That was able to collect in full HD, and as you know, is four times less resolution. And uh, we we bring the camera. The camera is mounted on the on the ROV on the on the underwater vehicle, and we start going down to the seafloor. We go down to the seafloor, and we stop in our first study site. Of course, it was not new for us. We, we have been there before several times, mm. but by using this camera, then I remember distinctly starting to zoom in with the camera zooming in until the point where we were able to see so imagine you have this underwater chimney that is covered with large animals mm. um but also with then we saw very very tiny animals and the fact that we had this brand new camera with higher resolution we were able to zoom in and we were able to see uh, organisms so uh, uh, animals that were one millimeter, two millimeter. Oh wow! Long. And and then we saw that the whole surface was covered with them. Oh wow! And you had different species, and we were able to capture this in such a beautiful way. And and we can use these images in studies, for instance, to to um, calculate the abundance and the diversity of these very tiny animals. Mm. In other cases, we have been there, and we didn't have our our eye, let's say, was not as good mm. as it was this time. And we were all, the ones we were on board, we were very surprised, but also really happy to see uh, this tiny cosmos, you know, this micro scale. So this is just an example of how technology really is mm. uh, our ally and, you know, better and better equipment and techniques will allow us to collect better data and th this is the s this is the same as with any other 
the area of research. Mm. Wow. I'm really looking forward to see like the like the videos or like you were talking that were down the pipeline so maybe more people can see yeah. what you're describing now. Yes, absolutely. We have we have um, a website for our deep sea center at, mm, at the yeah. University of Bergen and and also several uh, uh, sites for different projects and we uh, we uh, where we show some of these well short clips uh, of interesting uh, interesting scenes that uh, you know that also help communicate and i would say in recent years one big revolution that is enabling to reach out more about what we do is social media of course mm. uh, people are constantly connected and i would say nowadays you have access to all the information you want unless you don't want to do that uh, yeah. which means that it opened many channels also for us to show what we are doing um, mm. to 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 everyone mm. oh, yeah and i will make sure to have those websites in the description of this uh, episode with you so that people can like if they yeah, have listened to now then they can go and see that and like yeah fantastic yeah um what are your future plans, Pedro? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my future plans is are are to uh, well be happy in the sense that uh, be accomplished in what I do and do a good job and and be useful in what I do um, to the progress of society uh, and then just being happy and. Um, not thinking that I am in the wrong line of work. <laughs> That's the most important. But it can happen, you know, at, at yeah. some point. I think we, we should, every person should reevaluate their life once in a while. So, mm. um, we, none, no one is immune to that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I agree. I, I feel I have those, those thoughts pretty often, uh, actually. Yeah. But, but they're nice to play, play with. As often, I'm like landing out that I'm grateful for like where I am. But you know, sometimes it's like maybe just a little bit different, or like should do something else. Like yeah, yeah, and it's perfectly natural that we we adapt. Yeah, what we do to different things and um, uh, seek different ways of of feeling accomplished. I think. Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, uh, just just to say that it was really really nice to have this opportunity to talk to you and and to your audience um and to say that uh um yeah i mean i'm very happy to talk about what i have been doing and it's it, it was an honor to be here oh, amazing thank you so so much for coming here thank uh, you so much for really having appreciate me it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again, Pedro. And thanks to every, everybody watching or listening to this episode. I hope you learned something new. Again, if you have any feedback, please uh, let me know down in the comments. And uh, like if you're a listener to this podcast now, like it's a new project, you know, so like it would help out if you subscribe and so on. So we can so you can see the episodes and uh, we can help more people uh, know about these topics. And if you have any suggestions for any other guests or topics that you would like me to have on, please let me know. And with that, I just want to say thank you again and hope you have a nice day. Bye bye. See you in the next one.